Welcome back to another episode of Reformation Roundtable. My name is Joe Stout, and I and a group of other men are meeting uh, pretty much weekly to discuss planting a Reformed church in the Lewis County area, Centralia, Chehalis area. And so the following is a discussion that happened on February 6th, 2020, surrounding R.C. Sproul's talk, Faith Alone, Part 2, which we're going to listen to in just a minute. We had a dis- we're going to listen to the talk by R.C. Sproul, and then we'll uh, listen in on the discussion that happened as a result of that. We would love to start a church in the Centralia Chehalis area that is reformed, that is unabashedly reformed and robust, full of the goodness of the reformational doctrines, and that is what these discussions are all about. And I hope you enjoy it. We've been addressing the question, what is Reformed theology? And in our last session, we gave a brief introduction to the chief article of historical evangelical theology, which article is embraced by Reformed theology as well as by all other Protestant denominations historically, namely the doctrine of justification by faith alone, which was the central issue of the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century. Now, I want to go on with our exposition of that doctrine, and, and we've already looked at the meaning, basically, of the word justification, and we uh, spend time on the rest of the formula, justification by faith alone. And I want to look at the the particular elements of this formula. Again, to recap, the term justification means that act by which God declares sinners to be just in His sight. Now, part of the controversy of the 16th century rested on the etymological derivation of the word justification. The Our English word, justification, comes from the Latin justificare. And in the medieval church, what happened was the doctrine of justification began to be expounded in light of the background of the Latin Vulgate, the Latin interpretation or translation of the Bible, rather than on the basis of the Greek New Testament. And the problem that emerged as early as St. Augustine was that the term justificare in the old Roman judicial system meant to make righteous. To make righteous. Justus facare means to make. And so the idea began to emerge that God would never declare somebody to be righteous until he had first actually made them righteous in some manner. Whereas, in, according to the Reformers, the Greek New Testament word, dikaiosune, has to do with this accounting of people or reckoning people or deeming people to be righteous before they actually become righteous. Now, it is also important to say here that part of the debate over justification focused on how justification comes to pass. 
when we use the formula justification by faith, we're using a form of speech, the word by here, which is in our language a dative word and refers to what is called the dative of means or more specifically the instrumental dative. And so part of the debate of the 16th century focused on the question of what is the instrumental cause or the means by which justification takes place. Now in the Roman Catholic Church, justification is seen as requiring faith, at least in the case of adults, but initially justification is accomplished through what Rome called the instrumental cause of baptism. That is, in the sacrament of baptism, grace is infused into the soul. And the infusion or the pouring in of this grace into a human soul is saving grace. And then as, as a person receives this infusion of grace as an infant, they are placed in a state of grace. And they are kept in that state of grace unless or until the person commits a sin that is so grievous that it is called mortal sin. And mortal sin is defined as being mortal rather than venial because it is a sin so serious that it kills the grace that's in the soul. So even as a person can grow to adulthood, commit a mortal sin, still have faith, but loses the grace of justification. So the person who's in a state of mortal sin can still have true faith and not be justified. Now that's a critical point to remember. So that person, in order to be restored to a state of grace, has to come through what the Council of Trent called the second plank of justification for those who have made shipwreck of their souls. And the second plank of justification is defined by the church as the sacrament of penance. Now, in a very real sense, the whole controversy in the 16th century centered around the sacrament of penance. We know that the indulgence controversy that arose in Germany when Tetzel was going around uh, peddling his indulgences and so on, that was all linked to the church's doctrine of the sacrament of penance which includes several elements. For a person who has committed mortal sin to be restored to the state of salvation, in other words, to regain justification, they had to avail themselves of the sacrament of penance, which is performed by the church. And it has several elements to it, the first of which is sacramental confession person had to go to the priest and confess their sins. Father, I have sinned. I've done such and such and such and such. And also included in the sacrament of penance is priestly absolution, where after the penitent has made his act of contrition and so on and done everything that the church requires, the priest says, te absolvo, I absolve you of your sins. 
And then the next dimension of penance that was required to, for a person to be restored to a state of grace was to perform works of satisfaction. So, faith was required, confession was required, priestly absolution was required, and works of satisfaction were required. Now, the church was very careful at this point to say that these works of satisfaction did not provide what they call condign merit, merit that is so virtuous, merit that is so uh, authentic, merit that is so meritorious that it would impose an obligation upon a just God to reward the person. But rather, it was a lesser kind of merit that Rome defined as congruous merit, meritum de congruo. And that congruous merit is merit that is real merit, but it rests upon the prior reception of grace, and it is a merit that is less than condign merit, but it is meritorious enough to make it fitting or congruous for God to restore a person to justification. So the means by which justification took place was chiefly sacramentally. In the first instance, through baptism. In the second instance, through the sacrament of penance. Now, the Reformers said, no, the instrumental cause, and there they're borrowing uh, from the language of the church and the language of tradition, which has its roots in Aristotle's fine distinctions about various types of causes, wherein Aristotle defined the instrumental cause as that through which a work was performed, and his analogy was like a sculptor who was making a piece of sculpture and he was shaping a piece of rock or wood into a statue, the instrumental cause of his work would be his chisel. That's the tool or the instrument he uses to accomplish his, his, to accomplish his purpose. The Reformers said that the instrumental cause of justification is faith. Faith is the means by which the righteousness of Christ is given to us. Now that raises another issue that perhaps more than any other point of the dispute was the center of the controversy. And that is the debate between grace that comes through infusion and grace that comes through imputation. Infusion of grace was the Roman Catholic view that through the sacraments, grace in quantitative terms, being described quantitatively, is infused or poured into the soul of the person. And now that person has the righteousness of Christ poured into their soul. Now, without that righteousness of Christ, there is no justification. Protestants, I'm sorry to say, have often slandered the Roman Catholic Church 
for saying that the difference between historic Protestantism and historic Catholicism is that the Protestants believe that we're justified by faith and the Roman Catholics believe that we're justif justified by works, as if there was no need for the work of Jesus Christ. That's pure slander to the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church has always taught that the work of Christ is absolutely essential for our salvation. But here's how it works. The question then is how does the work of Jesus Christ and the merit of Christ become appropriated to me? How does it benefit me? Well, again, Rome answers this by the sacramental infusion of the righteousness of Christ into the individual soul. Then the individual has to cooperate with and assent to this infused grace to such a degree that they become actually righteous. So that, as Trent declares, righteousness, true righteousness, inheres within them. And only when they actually become righteous through the help and assistance of the grace of Christ, it's not on their own strength, uh, they cooperate with it, but once the infused grace of Christ is given to the soul and the sinner cooperates with it to a degree that the sinner becomes actually righteous, then and only then will God declare that person righteous. That's one of the reasons why they have to have a doctrine of purgatory and thousands of years of cleansing and purging to continue working in the soul until that person becomes holy enough to become declared just by God. Now the Protestant doctrine is this. Quickly, Protestants believe that something is infused to the Christian at the time of his conversion, and that is the inpouring of God the Holy Spirit, which works within us to help and assist us for our growth and sanctification. But with respect to justification, the Protestant view is that God justifies those who have faith by imputation. Now, imputation means this. It involves a transfer from one person's account to another so that the righteousness of Jesus is transferred in God's sight to the believer's account. So that when God looks at the believer, he doesn't see the believer's sin in legal terms. Rather, he views that person under the covering of the righteousness of Christ. And this concept of imputation has two dimensions to it. On the one hand, the atonement is seen as being centered to our salvation because when Jesus dies on the cross, he dies as a substitute for us. He dies vicariously as the sin-bearer of Israel, as the lamb without blemish, to whom God imputes the sins of the people. The Old Testament drama of the Day of Atonement. The priest would lay his hands upon the scapegoat, signifying a symbolic transfer of the guilt of the people to the victim who would be driven out 
of the presence of God. And so, in terms of the New Testament view of the cross, Christ is the suffering servant who bears the sins of His people, not because He Himself in His own humanity becomes inherently wicked, but rather He is a substitute for us, and God transfers our guilt to Him. And when He dies on the cross, He is taking the negative judgment, the wrath of God, to satisfy God's judgment, God is really punishing our sins when He punishes Christ, because He's transferred our sins to Him. Now, I've often said that if you ask a six-year-old child in Sunday school, what did Jesus do for you? The child has learned enough in Sunday school to answer by saying, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And we say, yes, that's true. But what else? If all it would take to justify the ungodly is for Jesus to pay the negative penalty of the curse of God against evil, He could have come down from heaven and gone directly to the cross and then returned in glory. But instead, He's born of the woman. He is submitted to the law, and His whole life is lived in rigorous obedience to every point of every requirement that God gives to His people. Why? Why did He say to John, baptize me, it is necessary to fulfill all righteousness? Here the Reformers understood the place of the active obedience of Christ, that Christ not only paid the negative penalty for our sin, but He positively achieved perfect righteousness. You see, if all He did was pay for our guilt, that would just simply put us back to square one, put us back to the status Adam had before the fall. Not guilty, but innocent in the sense of, of not bearing any sin, but having no positive obedience to commend Himself before God's justice no basis for a righteous granting of reward, the granting of eternal life and of heaven. But Christ not only dies for us, He lived for us. That's the whole point of the gospel, is that not only are my sins transferred to Him on the cross, but His perfect righteousness is transferred to me whenever I put my trust in Him. So again, when God judges us and declares us just, He declares us just because Christ is just and because we are in Christ by faith. And that's why the reason, the instrumental cause of justification is faith, because it's faith that is the tool or the instrument that links us to Christ. Now, Luther insisted that the, the merit or the righteousness by which sinners are justified is what he called a justitium alienum, a foreign justice or an alien righteousness, a righteousness that Luther said is extra nos, extra, outside of us.
If I have to wait before true righteousness manifests itself perfectly inside of me, how long will I have to wait to be justified? I'll have to wait forever. But the good news of the gospel is that God justifies the ungodly freely by giving to all who believe a righteousness that is, properly speaking, not their own. It is somebody else's righteousness. It is the righteousness of Christ that alone meets the test of the standard of God's perfect judgment. And so, again, when we say that justification is by faith alone, this is mere shorthand for saying justification is by Christ alone because the grounds of our justification is the righteous merit of Christ who alone has perfect justice in the sight of God. And that is given to us freely when we believe. And so what's left for us to look at in this brief exposition is what do we mean that we're justified by faith? James tells us, you know, you believe in God, you do well, even the demons believe and tremble. And so it's possible for us to think of faith as simple intellectual assent to correct ideas. And if you say, well, do you believe that Jesus died for you? And you say, yeah, yeah, I believe that. That doesn't constitute in and of itself saving faith. There are at least three elements to saving faith, according to the Reformers, that they distinguished. First of all, notitia, which is the information, the data. There is content to the gospel that we must believe. We must believe that Jesus is our Savior. We must believe that he died on the cross for us. We must acknowledge it to be true that we are sinners uh, before a holy God. That's the information. And we have to get the second element is ascensus, or intellectual assent. I have to agree that these things are true, that Jesus truly died for my sins. But again, it's not just passing a theology exam. A person can be aware of the information and even agree that it is true. But Satan knows the content, and Satan knows that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, but he's not redeemed by that. Why? Because the crucial element of saving faith is what's called fiducia, or fiducia, which means personal trust and reliance. And saving faith is given to all of those who put their trust in Christ and in His righteousness and put their trust there alone. Now, the Reformers said that justification is by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. That true faith, if you're really resting in Christ and you're really counted righteous by God, if you have true faith, that faith will immediately, necessarily, and inevitably produce the fruit of sanctification. And if no fruit follows from your justification, it is perfect proof that there was no justification. Because the idea of faith without the fruit of obedience is what James called a dead faith, and that can't justify anyone. So for Luther, justification is by a faith that he described as a fides viva, a faith that is alive, a faith that is vital, a faith that shows itself by faithfulness.
But again, the issue itself is, how am I justified? Not by my own righteousness, not by my own merit, but by the righteousness of Christ and of Christ alone. That was helpful at the end, getting into the description of, you know, just the, the idea, like the last 45 minutes he's talked all about this idea of the righteousness of Christ and how the Catholics, their beliefs on it are more nuanced than oftentimes Protestants think. And finally there at the end, he really just kind of brings it all home that the faith alone is not something that we're doing. It's still Christ imputed righteousness to us. But that our faith does have to be there because if it isn't there, then we won't we won't trust him. Um, so it's really a response to the work he's already done. And I think it, um, yeah. So kind of hearing him talk about the difference between infusion and impugning of of grace, I think that that's a that's a really great way of putting it. Um, the the way that I the way that I was always described uh, the sacraments within the Catholic Church the seven sacraments that they would acknowledge and I always forget what they the penance and uh, uh, marriage would be one baptism would be another actually being part of the priesthood the Eucharist and all you know those things those are actually a vehicle by which you are a recipient of God's grace and you are essentially an empty, empty cistern in which grace is then poured into you, um, making you righteous. The thing that I, I think that Sproul brought out more clearly than maybe I'd even thought about it in the past was this notion that, um, that the infusion of grace is actually, is actually like changing you into being righteous and therefore you are then acceptable to God whereas impugning is Jesus righteousness imposed onto you Um, and that's a that's a big distinction because one thing that Catholics will often say is that you are in a perpetual state of working out your salvation through fear and trembling there is no assurance of salvation and and any any good Catholic would tell you that, no, you are, you don't have an assurance of salvation. Mm-hmm. The moment you die, which is why you would get last rites, mm-hmm. all the way through that point, you would, you could lose it and you could lose it through the commission of, uh, you know, committing a mortal sin. Right. And so basically nullifying the mm-hmm. grace that is held within you. Right. Um, so I think that that's kind of having that language though of infusion versus impugned is a really powerful tool to, that distinction. Hmm. Yeah, and I sometimes wonder too how much, how much good, how many how many babies were thrown out with the bathwater during the Reformation, because I think oftentimes we go to the opposite. As Protestants, we can go to the opposite extreme, and we can look at our two sacraments, one of baptism and the other being the Lord's Supper, mm-hmm. as being merely symbolic. They're they're nothing but just a symbol. And that's why baptism has now become like this declaration of me deciding to follow Jesus as opposed to, because we don't want to say that baptism washes away your sin. <laughs> that sounds Catholic. <laughs> but Peter, Peter tells us that, you know, that the, your baptism washes you clean. Um, or the, you know, Jesus said, this is my body. Now, we're not 
Catholics, we don't believe it's literally goes from a carbohydrate to a protein, but we do believe, <laughs> but we do believe that Christ's presence is somehow real. It's somehow real, and, and by eating the bread and drinking the wine, we are strengthened and nourished in our love of Christ spiritually through that. Um, and so it was, it was helpful. I, I, I really like that too. And it's helpful too as, as Protestants, most of whom probably aren't too tempted to defect to Rome. It's helpful to, to look at these kinds of things and think like, well, we're, I, I, don't, I, mean, I don't need to get my definition based off just how anti-Catholic I can be. Like, where, where, where do I maybe uh, have something to learn from some of the things that the Reformers were going through? You know, you had all these different responses by, by Calvin and Luther and Zwingli. Zwingli was an iconoclast. He wanted to destroy every, every, everything that was, you know, crosses, any type of icon was, was gone. Luther, of course, wasn't. Calvin was somewhere in the middle. But we all kind of have these different responses to it. Uh, so that was, that was really helpful. Could we think, uh, could we, uh, I mean, that stuff he talked about was pretty, um, I guess, in depth, a little bit complicated, but, uh, but good. Um, but I don't really think that our thought process so much, and this is probably a really minor point, but of the Catholic Church is very slanderous, I think it works. When you look at the average Catholic person, or a, I mean, they really do, works is kind of prominent because none of us here are probably all that much of a theologian, so to speak. And, it, and it, in Romans, you know, it says, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace is no longer grace. So anytime you start to add anything to the scriptures, pretty soon it's tradition that kind of takes over. Anytime you start adding stuff to faith, even though I thought he did a great job of understanding our uh, imputation, infusion, mm-hmm. I mean, I never even thought of the word of infusion. Um, and didn't even know what the word imputation meant. <laughs> but, but I do think that us as the, the a little bit more common person is, um, you know, we kind of go, well, faith is where it's at, period. Right. Um, and so we kind of go that. And, and if you, and I've been, if you go to the Catholic Church at, at all and talk to any of them, I mean, they're so in a sense like us, I suppose, somewhat confused or a little bit lower level in the thinking. I mean, it's it's kind of more works because they aren't kind of being tricky about it. And going you mean like they'd say, I've been a good person, so oh, I'll be good. Oh, definitely. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. There's no question. Uh, but you could, yeah, anyways, I mean, and then, so it is. I mean, that's what they think about. It's just like he was saying, so what, how do you think about this stuff? Mm-hmm. And that's why Luther struggled so much with James, you know, to write straw mm-hmm. epistle because he couldn't quite understand how that right. worked and mm-hmm. that stuff. So I, I don't think I've said anything here that's True. revelatory. I just think that and we haven't slept in the Catholic Church. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, definitely, I definitely agree. I think that because uh, I asked you know, a priest, hey, you know, what's the, what's the deal if you have a Catholic who's a professing Catholic and they participate in the sacrament, has grace been infused if they do not understand the totality of the gospel? And the answer is yes. Mm. The, the answer is, is that if I, if I bless the sacrament of the Eucharist and I give that to a participating Catholic who is of clean conscience, 
that Christ's work without their understanding will still be effective. I think, that, I, and that's a, that's a weird do you, thing. Do you, dis, do you disagree with that? Oh, oh, fully, fully, absolutely. Because I think I, here, here's what I would say is that I, I think that there is a thre- I think there is a threshold of kind of what he was keying in on at the end there. Like there are degrees in your faith, or maybe not degrees, but there's branches in your faith, right? Or there's branches in your understanding of who, what's that? Facets. Yeah, facets to your, facets to your faith, right? And so the, 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 the thing about it is I think that there are certain aspects that you can, that you can get right, but you could still not be right with God. Oh, right. So you can, you can intellectually understand what the scriptures say, right? And you can even, you know, you can even acknowledge maybe the truth of it, but if there hasn't been a Holy Spirit conversion that's allowed for that truth to permeate your heart, then you got a problem, right? I totally agree with that. So, so the, so my, my thought is, okay, well, wait a second. So like the question, well, where does faith play into this? Well, it's faith in Christ, but it's faith that Christ is going to deliver through those sacraments, regardless of your ability to intellectualize why it's working. That That's would be that would that would be uh, that would be the position that most right. would, most would hold, or at least the way that it was explained to me by the by the yeah. priest there. So you know, we're going to get into maybe in next week, or I don't know what the next video is, but we're going to get into his take on covenant theology, which. I think. I think I saw that as a title. Um, okay. Well, it'll be... I, I don't know what his position is on the covenant and covenant theology, but I know that my position has been that, um, that when Jesus tells us that little children are, are what the kingdom of God is made up of, um, he wasn't talking about kids that were you know, old enough to intellectualize anything or describe anything intellectually. He was talking about babies and nursing infants. And so there is a sense in which your standing with God is so by faith alone and not by works that it can't even be by any intellectual things. And I think Protestants can oftentimes, we, we can get into this, you know, uh, I've just got my Bible open here to, to uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8. We all know it. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath uh, before ordained that we should walk in them. All of that's on God, and we're just these vessels of mercy that he is bestowing on. And so whether or not you can intellectually talk back what's going on, I really think is secondary to saving faith. But for, for those who are able to understand you know you that's why we have confessions and creeds and that's why you know if, if if you don't believe in a particular confession or creed like the apostles creed or something like that you sh- you have some explaining to do because because there's there's uh it's just basically orthodox theology I think the um, I think Tolkien wrote a short essay once on the kind of the magic. He used the word magic, and he's basically saying that magic has been given a bad name; it's been taken over to the enemy, sort of. When we think of magic as incantations and things like that, mm-hmm. basically, his essay was that the true magic only takes place through Christ, and and I think it's a there is. Called a miraculous or magic or whatever you're going to call it. There's there's definitely something that takes place that we have no control, understanding, 
You know, I mean, there's, there's, a, there's an element that is just beyond us. And I think the danger that the Catholic Church fell into is they recognized that, but they wanted to control it. So they said, this is how it happens. It happens through this, you know, this sacrament and this sacrament. This, and so it's, it gives the church the ability to say, there is this really amazing thing that Christ does in us, but it only happens if you do it the right way. So then it becomes kind of a, it becomes an incantation or a spell or a, you know, a magical ritual that if you if you do the right things, if you, you know, if you eat the the, the bread or if you, whatever, then you get infused. You know, but then, so I think that's, but I think we can do the same thing on our side is we can begin to say, okay, I, I've got it figured out now. And I'm going to put my ramifications around. This is how I understand it to work. And if I, you know, and even though we're we're shouting at the top of our lungs, faith alone, then we get into describing. Okay, what is faith then? We got to describe, you know, minutely what faith looks like. And if you don't fall into this description of faith, well, then it didn't work for you either. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think that's the, I guess that's the danger. And I, it makes me sound like I want to just say, well, I don't know anything. But and that's not what I'm saying. <laughs> I just think we have to be really careful. Mm-hmm. To start setting up, um, what's the word? Uh, um, well, I guess rituals are, are algorithms for how this actually works. Like know? a systematic approach to Correct. salvation. Yeah, I mean, and it, it. I think I think there's a lot of harm done in this whole praying the the sinner's prayer. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just like we got to get them to to pray the prayer. They pray the prayer. Oh, phew, okay, he's good. We don't have to worry about anymore. I just think that's again kind of a formula that if we if we just hear someone pray the right prayer then we are assured that they're one of the elect now and they're in and we're gonna, yeah, we can just kind of not worry about it anymore and I, I just think you know that there is um, that uh, there definitely is something amazing and miraculous and beyond me that happens that, mm-hmm. that Christ and I, I think imputeth as I, I love that phrase, I used to say that all the time, that God is imputeth his righteousness. I think before I ever knew what it meant, because I thought it sounded cool, but <laughs> I eventually learned what it meant. But, <laughs> um, but I think it's important to, you know, I think we have to be really careful about saying this is the way it happens. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that the way Mr. Sproul kind of uh, discussing like how the, like the fruitfulness of that faith, like that's, that's necessary for it to be a mm-hmm. Um, indicative of a saving faith because um, I grew up in a church where you know we had like a um, uh, vacation Bible school and that was always the thing that that they were always pushing was that like ABC kind of you know becoming a Christian prayer kind of a thing and you know I, I can think of a handful of people that I, I witnessed pray that prayer and who are now as lost as the day is long mm-hmm. um, and mm-hmm. so like yeah they acknowledged that truth at that moment in time or you know, felt compelled to. Or they had an emotional response. Or they had an emotional response. And, you know, I mean, I've seen people in tears, like, oh, you know, I'm so broken as a sinner, and I know that, you know, Christ died for me, and blah, blah, blah. Um, But then they have, there's no, as time goes on, um, sort of like in the parable of the sower, I mean, you know, they they come up, and then they wither. And then there's no fruit. It's it's a a dead faith. Hmm. So I think it's good that he sort of made that that in, that uh, 
an indication of that that there needs to be fruitfulness within that faith, or it's it's empty. Mm-hmm. So how does a, how does a Protestant measure the fruit? Well, I mean, I think fruits of the spirit are listed pretty clearly, mm-hmm. and I think you know we don't see those things in someone's life, and um, yeah, that goes those especially. Well, I think yeah, I think that's the thing is I don't the Bible has not given us a really clear description so that we can judge. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's really. I mean, I assume you're meaning how do we measure in our own life? Because that's that's really what it's for. Is mm-hmm. you know, I, my my inclination is not to find out whether Joe is saved or not. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I want him to be saved, and I you know that's that's definitely dear to my heart. But that's not my decision, my work. I mean, it has nothing to do with me really, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, but um, so I think this idea that faith without works that's not in there so that I can look at you and say hmm I don't know about your faith that doesn't seem like it anyway, it's more spurring me on to well faith true faith what it is is I mean it's exciting it's a it's a declaration of hope to me right that if I have faith then there will be works it's not a it's not a yeah. go out and prove you have faith by making sure you do these good works. So, you know, I mean, that's, that's what it can easily become, I think. Yeah. In, so. the, in the context, though, of loving your brother and faith for the wounds of a friend, if you see a professing brother living a life devoid of the fruits of the Spirit and full of worldliness, for sure. then, then Jesus does give you the opportunity to judge. He says, right. make sure that whatever judgment you use, you're okay with it being applied to you. Right, right. He, really, he prohi- he prohibits hypocritic judgment where they're doing the same thing you're doing, but you know maybe they're not being as socially acceptable. And right, right, right. uh, doing the same thing. So I, that's, okay. that's that's how I would see. You know, yeah. do yeah. they have the fruit? Fruit, not fruits. It's all it's all one fruit. It's, yeah. it's the fruit of the spirit. And are they living a life devoid of of a love of worldliness? I, that that would be the way I would look at it. But of course, that always comes secondary to faith. So you can't live, you can't live the the supposed life of fruitfulness and non-worldliness and not first have the faith mm-hmm. equipping you to do that. Well, because the, the other ones, an outpouring of the right, like that's the result of having that faith. Um, yeah, I guess the reason I asked that question was just because I, in in the context of what we just listened to, which is a a, a juxtaposition of the Catholic position on things and the Protestant. Mm-hmm. And you can see why it's super easy for them to go, well, the works of the Spirit or the participation in the sacrament. Mm, right. right? A sure. desire to be filled. And I want to keep coming back to that. I want to keep coming back to that. And so I was just, I was just yeah. more asking yeah. out of a curiosity, like, okay, so then what do we, you know, what do we do? Because they, they have, again, through a systematized approach to salvation, you have a very measurable way of going... Well, it's this, it's this, it's this, it's this. And how do you know a brother is participating? They're coming to Mass each week. Yeah. They're participating in it, you know, and that's sort of like... A, how many times have you gone to confession? Right, right, yeah. And so that's, yeah. At least but, once but a year. But all you're saying here is these are cautionary things. Is when he went through his first part about the infusion... Sure, right. That is all termina- or that is all system systemized stuff that is wrong. Correct. Kind of, and so now if that gets into your head, it's kind of well that's how you implement it. So then you go over to what could be a bit of an issue, I suppose, when you system systematize um, you know, the sinner's prayer and all that. Well that's true, it can have its issues, 
but at least you're in the right realm of how to think. And yes, it does all have to be part of what, I forget how he put that third part in there, but it has to be part of your heart, your faith, the way you've really bought into it, you know, because you believe to begin with, that's great, Satan does that too, you, whatever he said, mm -hmm. the second part, they seem pretty close. Yeah, the same, there's some blurry lines in that <laughs> Right, right, right. So, I mean, You're I... You're talking about the second one, the first one. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then, and maybe I would be disagreeing a little bit with you, Thad, because, I mean, judgment is part of it, and I, maybe Joe alluded to a little bit, because yeah. we do have, I mean, if if... You know, Spencer's over there and he's kind of beating his wife up a little. Well, we need to make some judgments. Spencer, that's she not what you said that to me again. Yeah. Well, she well that is a good yeah, point. She <laughs> so, I mean, You've been justified. Oh, she said that? Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's obvious ones you say in there, but there are those fine yeah. line ones where you kind of go, oh, I don't know. Okay, well, I'm not sure about that. I have to think about it, you know. Uh -huh. And, uh, and maybe if you are taking that position that Paul does, that, you know, of all the sinners I am chief, that then, then your heart's in, in the right spot of like, listen, sure. I'm, I'm there too, and this is what I see, brother, uh, in your life, and I want to warn you away from, from this. Yeah, other than the fact that Paul, one of the things I always love about Paul, and it seems very, very obvious, is that even though he may be the chief of sinners, you can tell he hasn't had a lot of compromising going on, because he's very good at blasting, you know, the church when they weren't doing it right. right. It wasn't like he was proud and haughty and all that. He was just tough. He's willing to bring a whip. Yeah. 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 yeah I, what I meant by judgment is I'm not here to judge whether you have faith or not. Sure. I mean, I definitely believe in saying, yeah. you know, come alongside Joe and say, Joe, you got to clean up here. Yeah. This is ridiculous. But it's out of an understanding that you're one of my brothers. Yeah. Right. Not I'm looking at you going, uh, I don't know, your faith is mm -hmm. not, I'm not sure what, you know, it's, it's really, I know you have faith, mm. so I'm coming to you saying, we got what's the deal here? here, you know, right. I mean, so yeah. something's going on because right. you're supposed to be, because mm -hmm. I trust that you do have faith and that right. there should be something come out, you know, mm. yeah. which is well, different than, it, kind of back on the whole systematizing salvation, um, although I think there can be issues with that. I'm sure there have been people who have been legitimately saved who have come to a true faith. Oh, for sure. Through yeah. that prayer, yeah, you sure. know. Absolutely. Um, so not, yeah. to, oh, yeah. not to completely discredit that. Um, and oh, I did. That, I mean, I, I'm discredited, but I did. That's yeah. My, no, I mean, I definitely had an experience yeah. where my life changed, and it was one well, the baptism. Same for Joe, probably, probably even though he's talking about way. baptism. <laughs> three years old, still in bed with mom. I remember. <laughs> um, and that's no joke. I do. I do remember that. In the the sinner's prayer is, you know, systematizing a, setting up a situation so that you can kind of trick people into having a certain psychological or emotional response is dishonest. Yeah. But the Holy Spirit can work through any any yeah. means. Yeah, that's, that's what I'm trying to say. Is like, you know, God's ways are not our ways, and I, you know, right. you meet people from all walks of life right. who have a true and honest faith, and the fruit is very clearly there. Yeah. And sometimes you get to talking to them, and you might disagree with them on some points, but like they're very clearly, you know, they have the joy of the Lord sure. very evident in their life. So, yeah. well, I mean, there's a place, and is it Paul comes across those these sinners that are all on fire, and he says, "Have you received the Holy Spirit?" And they go, "Like, what's that?" You know, I mean, that's, and so then he prayed, laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. You know, mm -hmm. so 
I mean, that's an interesting little thing. I mean, that's not the way it normally happens, right? So, I mean, it, I think that's, I guess that's what I mean by being careful about systemizing mm -hmm. everything. That if it doesn't happen this way, then you didn't, it didn't really happen, you know? Yeah, yeah. Whereas Christ, I mean, he can do anything he wants to, you know? I mean, yeah. however he brings us into his, onto his own, it's a, it's not for me to, I do think, though, that I want the the origination of faith. Like, what is actually generating faith in you? Mm -hmm. I think that that's I think that that's actually the important question to have answered, mm -hmm. because if you if you believe that there was a faith that faith is something that um, that can have a self-generated element to it, then that's where you get into that, the, the whole, the whole, well, you could lose your salvation thing, right? Because I'm just, I, I'm like, I'm, I'm that system that's being filled by grace because I'm the originator of my faith in Christ. Mm -hmm. I think that, I think that that's actually the important question to answer is, okay, well, where did your faith actually come from? Right. Um, it's my it's at least my conviction anyway that your yep. faith is your faith is when the Holy Spirit opens your eyes to truth and then you have that faith. The faith was actually not your own. Mm -hmm. Like it wasn't anything that you did out of your own strength so that you might boast in your own salvation. For sure. Yeah, but God, but God who was rich in mercy for His you great love. You do have to have it, right? And that's and that's almost even an evidence in and of itself, right? I mean, so you have your fruit that's the the evidence of the faith, and then the fact that you even have faith is the evidence that there is actually an inner working of the Holy Spirit to be able sure. to do that, and that's where your salvation origin, like that's the that's that that's that seed that's making that work. Right. Um, yeah, Ephesians two four says, "But God who is rich in mercy for His great love." wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace you, you are saved. And I think that the best description in the Old Testament is when Ezekiel is told to go preach to the Valley of Dry Bones. Mm -hmm. Just like, preach to the bones. And, and then God knits them all together. Right. And it's yeah. like, before faith, we're dead. Dead men don't respond to the gospel. Dead men don't walk down the aisle. Dead men don't pray the sinner's prayer. They're dead. And so it's the spirit that fills us that gives us the faith that allows us to respond. And it's entirely a gift from God. It's yeah. not, it's not even a little bit like the right choice. <laughs> I mean, it is the right choice, but it's, it's the choice that was made possible because you were, you were woken from your death, mm -hmm. your death, your sleep of death. Quickened. Quickened. Yeah. To use the King James. Okay, it's eight o'clock.